We have a lot to learn from snails. Charles Spurgeon showed us what we have to learn from them when he said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. (laughs) I like that. All the animals are getting to the ark quickly before the flood comes. But the snail, by perseverance, by not giving up, by inching his way there every day, he made it to the ark. We need that kind of perseverance as we make our journey to find our rest in God. Remember, St. Augustine said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And that's where we're going. That's where this journey is headed. We're finding our rest in God in these Psalms. And we need to understand that it's not a race. That by perseverance, the snail and the saint reach their rest. Part of the problem is that there are serpents in the path. You may remember in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right after Adam and Eve sin, God says, and this is called the Proto-Evangelium. It's a big fancy theological word for the first gospel. Genesis 3.15, God describes that there's going to be enmity, hostility between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So the serpent being the devil and his offspring, his followers, the woman being Eve and the one who's going to bear the messianic people of God, Israel, the Messiah, and, and his followers. These two clans are going to battle and fight. They're, going to, they're not going to get along all the time. And so on the path, as we are walking through life, We're going to find affliction, we're going to find setbacks, we're going to find pain and obstacles because the serpent and his offspring do not want us to continue on. And when we see this kind of opposition, we often want to say, ah, I want out, I want nothing to do with this. We're looking for the easy path. But God never promised an easy path. He simply promised the right path. And the serpent's going to get in the way. But what we must remember is how that verse ends. That, yes, the serpent's going to bite our heel. Okay, so there'll be some limping. It'll be hard to walk up this hill while our feet don't feel good. But ultimately, the head of the serpent will be crushed. He will be toothless. Just an oversized worm slithering around. We look at opposition and say, I want out. God looks at opposition and says, you don't want out of opposition. You want in my possession. You see, we want to give up and quit and say, ah, let's just go another way. God says, no, go through this. I'm holding you. I've got you. You can persevere. And we must choose to go through. Because when we stop going, we stop growing. And that's precisely what the enemy wants us to do, to stop growing. So he will throw obstacles our way to ensure that we stop going. If we stop going, we stop growing. So Psalm 129 wants to say, let's keep going. All right, so let's look at the psalm and the obstacles that are happening here. Psalm 129. It begins with, 
a Song of Ascents. So now remember, this is number 10 of 15 psalms called the Psalms of Ascent. And they're called such because they were psalms that were sung by the Jews as they traveled up the mountain of God to Jerusalem. And there they would be in the temple, which had 15 steps leading up to it, hence the 15 songs of ascent. And there they would be blessed by the priests from number six, which the priestly benediction said, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the blessing they're looking forward to. And that blessing had 15 words in the Hebrew, 15 psalms in which 12 of these 15 psalms are layered with lines from that blessing. So as they're singing these psalms, it's as if they're metaphorically going up the 15 steps as they're getting to the temple, and they're getting that blessing into them, reminding them, this is worth it, this is worth it. We cannot wait to find our rest in God when we get to the end of this long pilgrimage. It's a song of ascent. Verse 1. You're going to notice the psalm moves in three stages. It moves from problem to solution to resolution. Let's look at the problem. Verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Okay, that's the problem. They have afflicted me from my youth. Who's they? Verse 3 says, the plowers, they've plowed upon my back. So the people of God, their back is like a field. And they, the opposition, are plowing upon us. And it says, uh, plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. A furrow is that long trench that is made by a plow. As the animal pulls the plow and it's got the blade in the ground and it digs up the ground and makes this long groove so that you can put seed in it and it will grow. That is what the enemy is doing to God's people. They're plowing the backs. And so that's the affliction. They have afflicted me. The seed of the serpent. All those who follow the serpent in seeking to destroy or oppose the people of God. They have afflicted me. And notice that the uh, worship leader here breaks in, just like in Psalm 124. Do you remember that? Let Israel now say, Psalm 124 began very similarly. It went, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been Yahweh who was on our side, when people rose up against us, and they would have swallowed us up alive. And it goes through a few scenarios. Well, we've got a similar psalm now. This is the second one where there's a worship leader who breaks in. You can see the caravan going and some people are like, oh, our feet and oh, man, we feel afflicted. and This is getting hard. And then someone steps up and says, no, 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 come on, people, let's sing. Let's be together on this. And it encourages and lifts their spirits as they continue on the journey. And so here we have a leader. Let Israel now say, let the church now say, let Brandon now say, let the saint here before us now say, Yes, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth, but they have not prevailed against me. And that's what we must remember. We will go through afflictions. We will go through setbacks. We will have opposition, indeed, guaranteed. But are you still here? Every time we gather together as a church, even if it's just digitally, 
But when we gather together, we are making a statement. We are getting together and saying, let the people of God now say they have not prevailed against us. And think about that. Everything we've gone through, we have prevailed. We're still here and you will continue to prevail because God will carry us through the setbacks. It's not about getting out of our opposition. It's about getting in his possession. We keep going, so we will keep growing. It's when we stop going forward that we stop growing at all. And then we get stuck in Psalm 129, and that's where we are for the rest of our lives. But so there's this problem. Yes, the afflictor, but the hope. But we have prevailed. And then the worship leader, come on, Israel, realize this. Come on, Christian, child of God, realize this. We are not extinguished. Verse 4, the solution. Very brief, very powerful. We'll get to this later. Yahweh is righteous. Now notice what he does. He has cut the cords of the wicked. Now that can seem like a verse that's a little out of context until you realize the cords are probably the straps connecting the animal to the plow, the harness. So imagine this, the animal's pulling the plow, but if you cut the cord, then the animal's going to keep moving forward and the plow is stationary. So the wicked are leading the animal on, on the, on the field, trying to plow their furrows upon our back, but Yahweh snips the cord and the plow stays put. The animal and the plower move forward and nothing is happening. The ground is not getting turned up. There's not going to be a harvest over what he's plowing over. He's frustrating the plans of the wicked, you see? He's defanging the serpent. He's punching the dragon so that he no longer has any teeth left with which to tear into us. This, by the way, friends, is what Christ does on the cross. And when the when Genesis 3.15 says that, look, he, the offspring, the ultimate offspring of the woman, he will crush your head. Yes, the serpent has lots of bite and he's bruised many of our heels, but ultimately that's all he can do because Jesus has crushed the serpent's head. He's defanged. There will be opposition, but it will not prevail against us because God has cut their cords. They're plowing without a plow. That's brilliant. I love it. It's so good. So that's the solution. God cuts the cords. Verse five, we now, the rest of the psalm is the resolution. What happens now that God has cut the harness of their plow? It says this, verse five, may all who hate Zion, remember Zion's the mountain on which Jerusalem sits. So may all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. May their plans be frustrated, in other words. Verse 6, let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Now, the housetops, often there would be a thatched housetop with sticks intertwining and um, sometimes some dirt, some soil put on there. And of course, in time, as dust settles, more dirt would just naturally accumulate on the top of the house and in time, little seedlings will find their way up there and grasses would grow up. But it's not very good soil to actually last. So the psalm's picturing the grass that they would see on some of the housetops. It grows up quick, but it doesn't last. 
There's no root there for the grass. It doesn't last. So that's what he's saying. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up. Which, with which the reaper, now remember the reaper is like the harvester. Once the harvest is ready to be gathered, the reaper is going in to get it. That's who the reaper is. With which the reaper does not fill his hand. You don't see the reaper going up on the rooftop saying, ooh, grass, let me gather the grass. And what he's saying really is the grass has withered before the reaper is even out to go to the harvest. The grass hasn't lasted to the harvest. It withered before the harvest. So the reaper is not filling his hand with it. Next line of verse 7, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. So as they would gather the harvest, these great piles, they would bind them for easier carrying. Well, you don't see grass in that sheave that they're binding. Verse 8, nor do those who pass by say to the grass, the blessing of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. And there you have lines, blessing from the Aaronic um, benediction, Numbers 24. Remember the 15-word blessing which lions are scattered throughout these 15 Psalms of Ascent? Here you have it. Blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. So may the blessing of the Lord be upon you. Bless you in the name of Yahweh. That blessing does not apply to these plowers who are plowing the backs of God's people, these offspring of the serpent, these haters of Zion, these who are like the grass on rooftops. They don't hear the blessing. Why? Because they vanish before it comes. Here in the resolution, we see a very graphic picture of the opposite of perseverance. These, the wicked, don't persevere. God has cut the cords of their harness and they don't persevere. Their harvest comes to nothing. That's what's being said here. And so by implication, it's encouraging the people, God, look, don't, don't lose heart over what the wicked are doing. Look at their end. Consider their end. They aren't even going to make it to the harvest. But we, if we hang in there, look, yet have, they have not yet prevailed against us. Verse 2 says, they haven't prevailed against us. We simply keep going and we will keep growing. There will be a harvest at the end of this. And we will hear blessings of Yahweh be upon you. We bless you in the name of Yahweh. We will be gathered by the reaper and, and bound in the sheaves. We will be part of the harvest when Christ returns to gather his people. That's the imagery. That's beautiful. But it requires our perseverance. Or it requires grit. I love that word grit it's it's like perseverance but it just it has the word sounds like you've got to grind through excuse me awkward water break <laughs> you got to grind through grit it it will keep going nothing stops it grit is the opposite of quit grit is what the people of god have you know who belongs to the seed of the woman. You know who belongs to God because they have grit. We talked about the fruit of the Spirit last week, Galatians 5. And one of the fruit, uh, well, all nine of those qualities are the fruit of the Spirit. But one of those nine qualities, you may remember, is faithfulness. Faithfulness is a lot like perseverance. It is a lot like grit. 
Because faithfulness means you can count on someone to be there. Faithfulness means you commit to something and you will see your way to the end. That's faithfulness. And grit is faithfulness. Just another way to say it. Here in the psalm, we have perseverance. We have the people of God who are faithful to what they've committed. They're faithful to the way. They're going to keep going. They're not going to stop. They're moving forward. They're going to keep going. They're going to keep growing. They're not like grass. This It was a little hype thing. Then we like, yeah, we didn't really last. It was good for a season. I tried the religion thing. That's not what it's about. See, true faith. True faith is, yes, there's an acknowledgement of God and belief in all the right things about him dying for our sins and rising from the dead and being the son of God and ascending to his right hand. Like, yes, there is faith in that sense, but faith is also, you cannot limit faith to belief, otherwise it'd be called belief. Faith is also your commitment to living out these beliefs. It's your commitment to living out these beliefs. And so the Christian life never promised ease. It simply promised that you will make it. And so those who believe in these promises will keep going and keep growing. That's what faith looks like. We, we see the psalm considering the end of the wicked, but when you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you are considering the end of the faithful. You remember Hebrews chapter 11. It's, it's also known as the hall of faith. And there you have all the great saints. The word faith is mentioned so many times. And you have all the great saints described. By faith they did this. By faith they did that. By faith, by faith, by faith. All you need to do is insert the word grit. And you will see that makes so much sense. It wasn't that they blindly believed this would happen and it happened. That doesn't always make sense. It's that they were committed they were determined, they persevered. By grit, they accomplished these things. For example, um, by grit, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he's going. By grit, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's where we're going, the New Jerusalem. We're looking forward to that city. That's why we're on these ascents. Um, by grit, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And so you can see, yes, Faith has an element of belief. They had to believe what God said would come to pass, but it was not simple. Can you imagine Noah building the ark and everyone's like, it has never rained. No, what are you doing? He couldn't just, well, I believe it, so I'm going to do it. Like, it. It also came with grit. He had to keep building that ark when people were laughing at him, when there was opposition to the whole idea. When he began to doubt, is this really going to happen? He had to commit to what God had said to him. Abraham, going to this land he'd never seen, it's like, well, I believe God said it, so I'm going to try it. But man, how many times on that long journey did did someone in Abraham's caravan say, oh, come on, seriously, Abraham, we haven't seen anything in a while. When we get there, people are going to already be living there. Why not just go back to where we had a comfortable life? It takes grit to hold on to what God has said to us. And so, by faith, by grit. And then it tells us, Hebrews 12 ends up this whole list of um, people who had faith and grit. It tells us at the end about Jesus. And listen carefully, or read along with me, Hebrews 12, listen carefully to how it describes Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1. 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, chapter 11, all the people of faith, that cloud of witnesses, since we're surrounded by these examples, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. It's hard to climb the mountain with all that weight. And let us run with endurance, not haste. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How shall we run with endurance? Answer, by looking to Jesus. By looking to Jesus. Why looking to Jesus? He is the ultimate demonstration of faithfulness, of grit, determination, commitment to God's path for him. Even when it came upon him, he prayed, Lord, if there's another way, please let it pass. But God said, there is no other way. And Jesus committed to the cross. By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He didn't quit at some point saying, it's far enough, Father. He went all the way to the grave. <coughs> who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 3, so, brothers, consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, just like the people in the psalm, right? They're enduring affliction. Who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary. Consider Jesus and what he endured, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The Hebrews writer here is really calling us out and saying, look, you have not, you, if we're quitting, we're babies. Jesus committed and went forward even to the point of shedding his blood and dying. We haven't endured that far yet. Come on, guys, we can do this. He's saying, consider him who endured. This is grit and faith gives us grit. Faith is this grit. So we see that the wicked don't endure, but the people of God prevail. They will endure. Because grass doesn't last. That's what everything from verse 5 to 8, the resolution of this psalm says. Look, yep, the furrows are made long, it hurts, it's painful, but we will prevail because Yahweh is righteous. He's cut the cords, the harnesses of the wicked and their plowers. And so in the end, all they're going to grow in their harvest is grass. But grass doesn't last. Are you grass or are you fruit? See how the psalm carries on from the previous one? Are you grass or are you fruit? We'll find out but whether or not you last. If you don't last, we find out you are nothing but grass. Those who keep going, keep growing. They bear fruit. They become part of the harvest. We keep going. Grit is what this psalm is giving us, saying, keep going, people of God. Keep going, because grass doesn't last. But the psalm doesn't simply stop there and say, yep, just Hang on, just be tough. That's that's not the psalm's advice. That's where the world would stop and say, "All right, so here are my here's here's the way to find the grit within yourself. 
um, dig deep and whatever. The psalm, very subtly but very clearly, and the rest of the Bible makes it even clearer, tells us that it's not our grit that's going to get us through it. It's God's grip. It's his grip. Remember, we want out of opposition. God wants us in his possession. It's God's grip that we need. Look at verse 4. Yahweh is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So remember that beautiful picture? cut the harness. The plow is now separated from the animal, the plowers, and now there's no damage being done. Um, But that phrase, Yahweh is righteous. See, here's where we often understand righteous as simply being upright, morally upright. I don't know wrong. Yes, that is righteousness, but it's it's a shallow understanding of righteousness. And here it makes no sense in the contest. God is morally upright. He's cut the cords of the wicked. Okay, yeah, it means because they're wicked, he needs to do something about it. But there's a bigger picture here. For example, do you remember in Romans chapter 1, and Paul talks about the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it is the salvation or the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Then in Romans 1 verse 17 says this, for in it, the gospel, power of God for salvation, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Is the gospel about moral uprightness? Oh, sure, it's part of it, perhaps. But that is not the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. You see, friends, when it says in verse 4 of our verse, Yahweh is righteous. It's what Paul's saying. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Righteousness here means That God, because he has made certain covenantal promises to be in relationship with his people, will always do the right thing for that relationship. See, righteousness is a relational word. God has covenanted himself. He's promised himself in this relationship with his people. So therefore, it is the right thing for him to come to the defense of, to rescue his people. He must. It's an obligation because he's given his word. And so in other words, God has committed what he said he will do. God is the perfect demonstration of faithfulness, yes, in Jesus and the cross, but also before that even, as he comes to the rescue of his people, he has demonstrated the truest form of grit. He says, I will come to your rescue because I said I would, and I'm never backing out. Even when you sin and you go against me and you bring this evil upon yourself, I am committed to you. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And then in chapter 3, he talks about that righteousness being revealed in Christ on the cross. What, in other words, is this. We went so far from God to the grave, to our own grave. We had plowed our own furrows and buried ourselves in them. But God went to that place in Jesus and said, I will die in your place. I will be here to to get you out of those furrows, get you out of that grave. That's what the righteousness of God means, is he has committed to upholding his end of our relationship at all costs. Yahweh is righteous. He will always commit to the right thing for our relationship with him. That's what it means. 
we realize with breathtaking awe that God has us in his grip. He's righteous. He has us in his grip. He can hold on to us because he held on to the cross. That's what the cross shows us is, I will never let you out of my grip. I'm righteous. I will do battle to keep this relationship going. So what we learn is that it's God's grip on us that grows grit in us. It's God's grip on us that grows grit in us. When I understand that he's got a handle on me, it empowers me to keep going. Because I know that whatever lies ahead or whatever I'm in the midst of, he's righteous and his grip is on me. He will cut the cords of the wicked. You know, when we walk in a parking lot, we will always grab the hands of our children to protect them, right? A parking lot can be a dangerous place. People are backing out. People aren't always paying attention. They're swerving around in a hurry to find a parking spot. So yeah, you grab the hands of your kids and you walk them through the parking lot. Now, sometimes they get trained and so they reach up for our hand. They know I'm supposed to hold dad's hand right here or mom's hand. Um, but what they would, what happens is when danger comes, they learn real quick. It's not them holding our hand. It's us holding their hand. If they ever run in the wrong direction, my strong grip will bring them back. Or if there's danger, there's a car pulling out that we didn't see. I will make sure I hold them back. My strong grip has them. They didn't warn dad. Dad warns them, right? And so there's this hand-to-hand relationship we have with our Father, God. And we think sometimes, oh yeah, I've got a grip on him. I'm holding him. But really the whole time we learn that he is holding us. It's his grip on us. And realizing that grip on us, that grows grit in us, knowing that he will never let go of me enables me to keep going like the snail by perseverance the snail reached the ark the snail must have known that his creator had his grip on him god's grip on us grows grit in us so that we no longer decide oh no opposition let's just move on Instead, O opposition, let's move forward. And you see, there's a big difference between simply moving on and choosing courageously to move forward. To simply move on is to push the past away. It's to forget your grief. It's to ignore the lessons that the situation's teaching you. 
It's essentially cutting off, like God is the wicked. It's like cutting off the harness of the past. I'm just going to, we're going to move on from that. We're just going to ignore, new, a new path has opened up. We're going to go that way. That's moving on. You can think of it like the novelist who's working hard to write a book and somewhere the plot isn't working. He's got writer's block. It, it turns out it's too hard or he's being rejected by editors or whatever. And he just, you know, I'm going to move on. Different story or a different hobby or a different career. I'm going to move on. That's quitting. Moving on is quitting. But moving forward is committing. Moving forward is I understand there's a whole lot of things to solve. I'm going to push through. I'm going to push through. That's committing. Grit moves forward. Quit moves on. And knowing that God has his grip on me will grow the grit in me to move forward. See, moving forward says, yep, I know it's been hard, but look, I'm going to take the wisdom from those experiences with me to grow me. That's moving forward. Moving forward is I'm going to keep going so that I keep growing. And knowing God's grip on me will grow that kind of grit in me. Friends, whatever it is we're in the midst of or whatever it is that's coming up, yes, afflictions, setbacks, we may suffer those on the way. But God's grip on us grows grit in us, the kind of grit it takes to move forward forward.